Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And uh, this morning I'll read for us once again verses 5 through 24. And I uh, say once again because we have been uh, looking at these verses over the last several weeks as we're closing out our series in 1 Corinthians. And in chapter 16, we've been looking at these verses each week from a different angle, tracing a different theme within this chapter. And uh, I had said that this Sunday was going to be our last sermon in 1 Corinthians, but the series lives on, I think, okay? So uh, we had to make some adjustments in the sermon schedule. I have one extra Sunday next week, and there's so much in this chapter that I think I'm going to do an extra sermon on uh, 1 Corinthians 16 next week. Uh, looking at a different part of this passage. But uh, as we've been walking through this chapter, we've been looking at the theme of uh, partners in the gospel. And we've seen that uh, partnership in the gospel involves several different things. Uh, One, it involves financial investment. Another involves being with one another in community. Uh, Gospel partnership involves honoring gospel workers, which we looked at last week. And then this week, what we're going to see from our text is that gospel partnership involves being watchful, being strong, and being loving. Okay, so that's what I want us to focus on this morning in our text, and we'll be looking specifically at verses 13 and 14. But I'm again reading for us in verse 5. I'll read through the end of the chapter, and then we'll pray. So 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning in verse 5, Paul writes, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries." When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Verse 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanas and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray, okay? Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray now that you would help us as we turn to your word. 
to listen attentively, to receive it with an open heart. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would do what we cannot do, that you would apply it to our lives, that, Father, we might be faithful disciples, that we might be faithful partners in gospel ministry, that we might see you accomplish much through our lives and through our church. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, to be partners in the gospel is to be partners in a spiritual battle, a spiritual battle that is cosmic in its scope and eternal in its impact. And in this cosmic battle that is taking place, Paul is like a military commander. And what we see in verses 13 to 14 is Paul is issuing a charge to his soldiers, to the church in Corinth. He's It's as though as he delivers these words, he's delivering a charge to soldiers who are about to enter into battle. In verse 13 and 14, he says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. You see, if this partnership between Paul and the church in Corinth was to be healthy and to be strong and to be effective, then the church in Corinth must take Paul's charge seriously. I've been reading a book, actually recently finished it, entitled Extreme Ownership. It's about two U.S. Navy SEAL officers who were played a significant role in the U.S. Uh, operation to retake the city of Ramadi in Iraq. And so in this book, they share accounts of their battle experiences, and then they draw out leadership principles and apply those principles to the larger context of life and work. It's a very interesting book. And as they record some of their experience in Ramadi, they share that one of the greatest challenges that U.S. Navy SEAL teams faced in the city of Ramadi was the experience of being given orders to execute all their missions by, with, and through Iraqi security forces. In other words, they had to, from this point forward, once they were given these orders, they had to enter into a partnership with Iraqi soldiers and work closely together in the field of combat. Now, why was that such a challenge? Well, at that time... The Iraqi soldiers, you remember the army had been disbanded after the war, and then they tried to recruit a new army. And at that time, this new army was woefully unprepared to engage enemy insurgents. In fact, the authors write, quote, Young enlisted Iraqi soldiers' primary goal was survival, not victory. Physically, they were weak. Most Iraqi soldiers were incapable of doing even a few push-ups or jumping jacks. Tactically, they were dangerous and unsound, end of quote. So you can imagine the dilemma here. You have some of the most highly trained soldiers in the world, U.S. Navy SEALs, and they are now under an obligation to partner with, join forces with, what they describe is one of the worst trained armies in the world, and to do so in an extremely dangerous war zone. Now, when I think about that scenario, I can't help but think when Paul reflected on his partnership with the church in Corinth if he had a similar sense or feeling. Here you have the Apostle Paul, 
the great theologian and apostle of the New Testament church who's going to take the gospel to the nations. And here he is partnering together with the church in Corinth that was crippled by division, selfishness, immorality, and false doctrine. It's in that context that Paul speaks to the church in Corinth as a fellow partner in the gospel. And he exhorts them, he admonishes them, he calls them to receive and respond in obedience to this letter that he has written to them. To be faithful disciples of Jesus, faithful partners in gospel work. He calls them to be watchful, to be strong, and to be loving. I want us to look at each one of those charges this morning. First of all, let's consider the charge to be watchful. You see it there in verse 13. Paul says in verse 13 to the church in Corinth, be watchful. That word actually is used 22 times in the New Testament. It can be translated, be alert, keep watch, stay awake. And when you see this word used in the New Testament, you see it used primarily in reference to two things. First of all, it's used oftentimes in reference to the second coming of Jesus. That we are to be alert, be awake, be watchful as we anticipate Christ's return. So Jesus himself says in Revelation chapter, Revelation chapter 16, uh, verse 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. This word is also used, though, in reference to the spiritual temptations and spiritual perils that Christians will face in this life. So Peter uses it in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, when he writes, Be sober-minded, be watchful. That's the word. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now some debate, well, what does Paul have in mind here when he says to the church in Corinth, be watchful? Is he thinking primarily about the second return of Christ or is he thinking primarily about the various temptations and perils that we experience in this Christian life? But really, I don't think we have to make a choice between the two. I would say it's both. There's a sense in which both are present here because the two are related, right? Because Christ is coming, because he will come, we are to live lives of obedience in eager anticipation of his return. We are to be watchful, be alert, to be awake. Now this was especially relevant as Paul gives this charge to the church in Corinth. It was especially relevant to this church. Because this letter, as we've worked through it now for some time, it indicates how heavily the church had been influenced by the worldview and values of the Greco-Roman culture in which they lived. It was a culture that was decidedly pagan and anti-Christian. And as a result, because the church had absorbed the culture around them, many in the church were preoccupied with status and class. They were divisive and petty, Many in the church were sexually immoral or greedy or selfish. And Paul here at the end of the letter is writing to them and he's saying, wake up from your spiritual stupor. Be alert. Stay awake. Now, my friends, we know that like the culture that Paul is writing into as he writes to the church in Corinth in the first century, we know that our culture today is especially adept at luring us into a spiritual coma. 
Of course, there's the obvious examples we can think of. Think of greed and materialism and pornography. But there's the not-so-obvious examples as well. In our culture, values, greatly values uh, productivity, getting things done, achievement. And that's not all wrong. In fact, that can be a good thing. Oh, my friends, isn't it so easy in our culture to get so busy, busy with doing stuff all the time that we never slow down to think about spiritual things. It's always a rush to do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And if we achieve and we get it done, then we're validated, we're affirmed. That's good. But all the while we can block out what is really meaningful, what is really significant, what is really eternal in our lives. Not only that, but entertainment. Again, entertainment is not all bad. I love watching a good football game. Oftentimes we'll check Facebook to see what's going on. But we also recognize that when it comes to entertainment, the options today for us are almost endless. And it's so easy for us to become drunk on things that aren't even necessarily bad like news or sports or social media. But we become drunk on those things and as a result we become spiritually numb and indifferent to that which is most meaningful. Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he says, listen, don't let this happen to you. Don't fall into a spiritual stupor. Be awake, be alert, be vigilant for Christ will return and in this life there are many dangers and many perils to your soul. And so how do we stay awake? How do we stay alert spiritually? I'll just say a few things quickly before we move on to our next point. One, we must devote ourselves to prayer. We must devote ourselves to prayer. You know, when Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed and he was praying with his disciples and he was preparing himself for the crucifixion, you remember that he spoke to his disciples repeatedly when they were in the garden and he said, stay awake and pray. Stay awake and pray. It's the same word, actually, that's used here. It's prayer that helps us heighten our spiritual senses, sharpens our sight. And enables us to be spiritually wise. Secondly, not only should we devote ourselves to prayer, but we should immerse ourselves in Scripture. We should immerse ourselves in Scripture. When we are not in the Scriptures, we become spiritually anemic and weak. The Scriptures are food to our souls. And when we are weak, we are easy prey for sin and for Satan and for the world. And then the third thing we should do is we should commit to community. Devote ourselves to prayer, immerse ourselves in Scripture, and commit ourselves to community. When we become spiritually sleepy, the words and the examples of other believers serve as like a spiritual stimulus to wake us up, to sharpen us, to remind us of of the narrow path that we are to be on so that we don't stray into territory where our souls can be imperiled. And so in order to be spiritually awake, we must devote ourselves to prayer, immerse ourselves in Scripture, and be committed to community. That's the first charge that Paul gives to the church in Corinth. Be awake, and especially as it relates to the cultural influences around them. 
The second charge is this. Be strong. Be strong. Look there in verse 13. Paul writes, Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Now these three commands here, after be watchful, the three are stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. These three I'm uh, presenting as a cluster. I think they're all essentially getting at the same idea. And And the central idea that these three charges are getting at is that the life of a Christian requires strength and it requires courage. We see this in Paul's life and in his ministry. So actually, we know that Paul was writing this letter, 1 Corinthians. He was writing it from the city of Ephesus. And while he was in Ephesus, he was engaged in gospel ministry. He tells us in this chapter here, just a few verses earlier, in verse 8 and 9, that in the city of Ephesus, he had found that there was a wide door open for effective ministry. But as he had this wide door open for effective ministry, there were also many adversaries who were opposing him and opposing the ministry that he was engaged in. So Paul needed courage. He needed strength to continue on in gospel ministry. Not only do we see this in Paul's life in ministry, though, we see also that this is a consistent theme in the Old Testament. This is a consistent theme in the Old Testament. Actually, one of my favorite examples is the example of Moses giving the charge to Joshua before he enters into the promised land. And Moses charges Joshua because he knows that faithfulness to God's word will be difficult. It will be hard. And so Joshua is going to need strength. He's going to need courage. And so Moses says to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1 verses 6 and 7, be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Oh, my friends, today it takes strength and it takes courage to be faithful to God's word. This was illustrated actually this last week or so when a well-known evangelical leader, a leader actually that I have uh, benefited from his writings and from his speaking over the years, uh, indicated in an interview that he approves of same-sex relationships and same-sex marriage. He was actually asked in the interview if he was approving, if he had changed his views on the morality of same-sex relationships. And he indicated in his answer that he really didn't have a problem with same-sex relationships. And then the interviewer followed up and he said, well, if you were asked by a homosexual couple to perform a same-sex marriage, would you do so? And he said, yes, I would. I wouldn't have a problem with it. As a result, there were a number of Christian leaders who came out in the next few days and online and in print indicated that this position was directly opposed to the biblical teaching on sexuality and marriage. And the next day, after, the, after this leader had given this interview and presented this position, the next day he came out with a statement saying, in actuality, I wouldn't perform a same-sex marriage, and I do affirm a biblical understanding of sexuality and marriage. Now listen, we hope that there was a there was a genuine change in his heart, we, and, and I hope that, that he was repentant and saw that what he had done originally was inconsistent with what the Scriptures teach. 
But it was really a sad and tragic display of how such a controversial issue, such a sensitive issue was handled by a pastor. Listen, my friends, it takes courage. It takes strength to stand firm in the faith. And Paul is writing to the church in Corinth here, and he says, listen, I want you to act like men. I want you to be strong. I want you to stand firm in the faith. It takes courage and it takes strength when an interviewer asks you, do you approve of same-sex marriage to say, you know what? I would love that homosexual couple. I would be their friends. I would invite them over for dinner. I would invite them to my church. But I cannot, I cannot affirm a lifestyle that is inconsistent with God's word. My friends, it's not just pastors that have to answer questions like that today. So many of you are having to give an account in social interactions, in your school and in your workplace. Listen, we think, oh, well, today we're so progressive. We've come so far. No, we haven't. The city of Corinth was known worldwide for their sexual perversions, for their acceptance of sexual deviance, their acceptance of adultery and prostitution and temple prostitutes and homosexuality and incest. And it was into that culture that Paul writes and calls the church in Corinth to be holy and distinct and set apart for the glory of Christ. It's in that culture that the church in Corinth had to have strength and courage to submit themselves to the lordship and obedience of Christ. My friends, it takes a similar strength and courage today. If we are to be faithful disciples of Christ, we must be watchful. We must stand firm in the faith. We must act like men and be strong. The third charge, though, is this, to be loving. To be loving. Be watchful, be strong, and then third, be loving. Look there in verse 14, we read these words. Actually, I'm going to start back in verse 13 because that's very important. Paul writes, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. I I am so thankful that verse 14 follows verse 13. That is not an accident. In fact, it's very intentional. Paul has just admonished the church in Corinth to be strong, stand firm in the faith. And then immediately after that, he follows his words with, let all that you do be done in love. And for some of us, I imagine we're thinking, can, can both of those things like, be done together? Because one of the tragic errors of our day is that those two things, theological, religious conviction and strength and love are necessarily opposed to one another. That you can't be both. That either you have strong convictions or you're loving, but surely you can't be both. But listen, my friends, that is not what Paul teaches us here. And it's so important for us to get because either either we will be loving and kind of 
squishy and permissive when it comes to theological and biblical truth, or we will be strong about convictions, but we will be harsh and abrasive and self-righteous and unkind. And that tragically is what we see so oftentimes in our world today, one or the other. But Paul is telling us that there is a way to be both. And how do we do that? Well, one way is to look at the model and the example of the Apostle Paul himself. In fact, this entire letter, 1 Corinthians, you want to know what does this look like in action? Read the letter of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a case study and speaking hard truth in love. Paul is consistently correcting this church, but doing so with love and affection. Of course, the perfect example of this, though, is the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus himself was a man who was perfectly strong and loving. It was the strength and courage of the Lord Jesus that when Peter came to him and said, listen, Jesus, this whole cross thing, I don't think that's such a good idea. You're talking about being the Messiah. You're talking about being a king. You're talking about ruling and reigning. The cross doesn't work with that. And Jesus said to him, Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you have the things of, mine. You have the things of man on, in your mind, but I'm thinking about the things of God. But at the same time, it was the love of Jesus that even as he was crucified on the cross by sinful and wicked men, he prayed for them even as they were about to gamble for his last piece of clothes. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It is Jesus who's the perfect example of strength and love. And one of the reasons why Jesus stands out from the pages of the gospel and shocks us It's because we see this over and over and over again in his interactions with people. Strength and love, courage and kindness. It was Jesus' love for the Father and his love for us that drove Jesus to the cross. And it was Jesus' courage that enabled him to stare Satan, sin, death, and hell in the face and to conquer them all on our behalf. I gave you an example of a contemporary pastor who fumbled the ball when he was asked a difficult question about modern sexual ethics. Let me give you an example of a faithful pastor who was presented with a similar challenge. There's a woman by the name of Rosaria Butterfield She describes herself at one point in her life as a leftist leftist, lesbian professor at Syracuse University. She was a tenured professor and she specialized in uh, feminist and gay and lesbian studies. And so she was writing on these issues and she was writing on how they relate to uh, religious matters. And as a result, she was receiving a lot of mail, fan mail, on the one side, people who approved of what she was saying, who were more progressive and liberal in their ideas of sexual ethics. And she would receive hate mail on the other side, especially from folks who were religious and opposed her. But she writes, quote, One letter I received defied my filing system. It was from the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. 
It was kind in an inquiring letter. Ken Smith, that's the pastor, encouraged me to explore the kind of questions I admire. How do you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know you are right? Do you believe in God? Ken didn't argue with my article. Rather, he asked me to defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. I didn't know how to respond, end of quote. She goes on to say that Ken continued to write her letters and they began to correspond with one another over these matters. But he didn't mock her. He didn't antagonize her as she had experienced so many times before from people who were religious. Rather, he engaged her. And in fact, he invited her over for dinner. She said her motive at that point to going to dinner was strictly to do research. She didn't really have much of an interest in building a further relationship. She just wanted to know, what do these weird Christians believe and why? But then she writes, quote, something else happened. Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if the conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I'd never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. End of quote. As a result of this evolving relationship with this pastor, Rosaria Butterfield began to read her Bible, and she said she consumed it like a glutton devours. She began to read the Bible in different translations multiple times in a year. As she was reading the scripture, she was still engaged in a same-sex relationship with her partner, and her partner and her had a friend, uh, party one night, invited friends over. One of her transgender friends cornered her and said, Listen, Rosaria, you've got to understand, this Bible reading is changing you. And with tremors, Rosaria records, I whispered, What if it is true? What if Jesus is a real and risen Lord? What if we are all in trouble End of quote. At this point, she was well on her way to becoming a Christian. And in time, she did. She writes of her conversion. It's beautiful. Listen to this. Quote, Jesus triumphed. And I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved, but the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. I drank tentatively at first, then passionately of the solace of the Holy Spirit. End of quote. Her life from that point forward, it was difficult, it was challenging. She describes it as a train wreck, but it was radically transformed. She is a beautiful Christian woman today. I actually had the opportunity to meet her a few years ago. She is an articulate and compelling voice for biblical sexuality. Listen, Rosaria Butterfield was changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it was through the life and ministry of a man who was both strong and loving. Amen? 
convictional strength and love so often seems to be at odds in our culture. Either you're one or the other. But listen, my friends, in the Bible, that is not the case. Neither is it the case in the life of Jesus. And where both of these things reside, convictional strength and love, there we witness the glory and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes lives. Paul is calling the church in Corinth here, be strong, act like men. You will be opposed on every side. And as you do so, do so with love. May no one ever doubt that you love them. Lay down your life for others as Jesus laid down his life for you. In so doing, my friends, we will be faithful disciples of Jesus and we will be faithful partners in the gospel. You know, partnerships can be tricky, especially if one party does not fulfill their obligations. You might be wondering, or maybe you know the story, what happened between that partnership between the U.S. soldiers and the Iraqi soldiers in Ramadi, Iraq? Well, in the book, Extreme Ownership, the authors go on to tell that these two groups of soldiers worked together for six months in the city of Ramadi, taking the city back from the insurgents and securing it. But as they did so, they also chronicle in this book how the Iraqi soldiers did a number of things that were very stupid and dangerous. Those are actually the words they use. One example is uh, they were engaged in a gunfight with enemy combatants. The SEALs and the Iraqi soldiers were. Some of the Iraqi soldiers got afraid and started running backwards and aimed their AK-47 over the back of their heads and were shooting. And downrange, there were U.S. soldiers and Iraqi soldiers. And so a U.S. Navy SEAL had to come in and swipe the gun away, take it out of the Iraqi soldier's hands so that he wouldn't kill one of his own. So there were incidences, incidents like that. But the Iraqi soldiers also proved to be useful and helpful in a number of ways. In the city of Ramadi, there were gates that would close off certain houses or compounds, buildings that the, Iraq, that the soldiers had to get through. And the American soldiers didn't know how to enter in, so they would use a sledgehammer or they would use an explosive. And it was effective, but it also was loud, so it would blow their cover. They also, U.S. soldiers had a very difficult time telling the difference between an enemy combatant and uh, someone who was a native of that population. But the Iraqi soldiers, they could easily distinguish between different mannerisms and different ways that people uh, dressed or different accents. And so they were much more adept at making a distinction between who was the enemy and who was a friend. As a result, they were a great help to the U.S. Navy SEALs. Over those six months, there was a real camaraderie that was built between these two groups of soldiers. And as a result of the U.S. Navy SEALs coming in and suppressing the opposition of the insurgents, the city was free, more free and secure. 
And as a result of the Iraqi soldiers being able to get some much-needed battle experience, the U.S. soldiers were able to step back, step away, and hand security over to them. You see, in partnerships are intended to be like that, where the strong help the weak, and yes, even the weak help the strong. And so what about this gospel partnership between Paul and Corinth? How did, how did it end up? How did things turn out? Well, there's actually another letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. In the Bible, it's known as 2 Corinthians. And in reading 2 Corinthians, we learn that the church in Corinth received much of the correction that the Apostle Paul had directed towards them. They changed And the partnership between Paul and the church in Corinth was strengthened and more effective. But really, at the end of the day, the most important question for us to ask is, what about us? What kind of gospel partners are we? What kind of gospel partners are what kind of gospel partner are you? To your spouse? To your family? To this church body? You know, you might say this morning, well, if I'm really honest and I think about the three charges that Paul gave to the church in Corinth, if I'm really honest, I'd have to say I'm kind of spiritually sleepy right now. I'm spiritually dull. I'm just being kind of tossed to and fro. Or you might say, you know, if I'm really honest about where I'm at spiritually, I would say that whole truth and love thing, I don't really do that very well. Well, my friends, if that's where you find yourself this morning, I've got good news for you. That's the reason why God calls us to be in gospel partnership. So the strong can help the weak. And yes, even so the weak can help the strong. So that we can help one another and encourage one another to be awake, to be strong, to be loving, so that we might be the light God has called us to be in this world for the glory of God. Where are you at? in terms of these charges that Paul gave to the church in Corinth. Paul is not only admonishing the church in Corinth here, but through this experience, he's admonishing us. Be awake, be strong, be loving, and do so in partnership with one another because we need each other in this battle that we're engaged in. Let's pray and ask God to give us help to do so. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. Lord, we know that this vigilance, this strength, convictional strength, this love that lays down its life for the sake of another is not natural to us. And so, Father, we thank you and praise you for the example of Jesus, for the example of Paul, for the testimony of your word. Oh, Lord, what we read of here in your word, Lord, we pray you would make a reality in our own lives. Help us to be faithful disciples, faithful partners in the gospel for your glory. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.